I am just thrilled to be here with you uh, this evening and to have the opportunity to share. Over the course of the next three days, tonight, tomorrow night, and then Sabbath morning, we'll be exploring the book of Revelation. Tonight, Revelation's warning for slumber. Tomorrow, Revelation's exhortation for half-hearted apathy. And then Sabbath morning, Revelation's cure for lost love. And as we talk about the, word, the, the book of Revelation and Revelation's cosmic conflict, let us not get lost in the types and the symbols of the book of Revelation. And let us focus on the main theme of that book, which can be simply summarized in a complex sentence, and that is this. Jesus wins, the devil loses, choose to be on Jesus' side. When we're confused about the 144,000, just remember, whether they're figurative or literal, Jesus wins and the devil loses. Don't lose sight of that. As we begin this evening, there is confusion in the world. Just over one year ago, on March the 13th, 2020, in Louisville, Kentucky, police using a battering ram, entered the apartment of one Brianna Taylor and Kenneth Walker as part of a drug investigation. Many have read about this story. Many of us saw the results. Details that follow that I will describe differ depending on where you read the news. But what apparently happened is police returned fire with 20 shots. Five of those shots struck and killed the young woman, Breonna Taylor. And in the aftermath, riots and protests broke out against the injustice or the apparent injustice of what had happened. And just a few months ago, none of the three officers involved were indicted in the death, which once again brought about riots and protesting. And when we look at the images that have been created in the media, it leaves many wondering what is happening to America. 2020 brought the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And instead of mourning the death of a longtime serving Supreme Court justice, There were arguments over the constitutional duties of the president, the threat of a speaker to impeach the president, which now we know happened. There were war of words. There were attacks on appointees. And it left many wondering what is happening to America. The election of 2020 brought about the same question. What is happening to America? And if we just read the news today. Headlines, outrage after the White House press secretary reveals that the Biden administration has been flagging Facebook posts. A Democratic congresswoman arrested, hands zip-tied after protest at a building. And it leaves many wondering, what in the world is going on? In September of 2020, there was a gathering on the National Mall. 
I'm going to share with you here a video clip. The video clip is approximately eight minutes long. As we watch this video clip, let me be clear in advance so it is not misinterpreted. I do not support what's in the video clip, but I'm showing the video clip that we might be awakened to the reality of things going on. Often we talk about the cosmic conflict as a future. But my dear brothers and sisters, the cosmic conflict is happening right now before our very eyes. Not only is it happening right now before our very eyes, but the battle lines are being set. In fact, in fact, This week I've been exploring with some master's students metaphors of the church. One of the metaphors of the church is the church as an army. Are we an army of well-disciplined soldiers waiting and watching and preparing for what is happening and what is coming? Let's watch this clip, and afterwards, we will dive into Revelation's warning for slumber. This is Jonathan Kahn. We are standing at a pivotal moment in American history and world history, a moment that can permanently seal our nation's course and the course of the world for good, for bad, for calamity, or redemption. America and much of Western civilization was founded on a biblical foundation stone, but it's turned away from that foundation. We have not only driven God out of our public life and have called what is good evil and what is sin good, but we have sacrificed the lives of over 60 million unborn children. And America's fall from God is not only progressing, it's accelerating to the point that it's no longer just a falling away, but a war against the purposes of God. I wrote in the harbinger of the signs of judgment that appeared in the last days of ancient Israel, warning of calamity, and that these same signs of warning have now appeared on American soil. The biblical template concerning judgment is that the nation so warned is given a space of time to return or to head for judgment and calamity. We are now in that window of time. But if America continues on its present course, that window will come to an end. And there will come a flood that will begin the end of religious freedom, even usher in persecution, and seal America's fall. And if America falls, it will affect the entire world. This year, 2020, is crucial. As it leads to a presidential election in which the stakes are higher and the necessity of prayer more critical than ever before. And even if the election goes in the direction of biblical values and righteousness, if we don't see a spiritual turning, an awakening, a repentance, revival, then all the political, legal, judicial, and cultural efforts will ultimately fail or be undone. We have a window of time, and the purpose of that window is to return and for revival. 
Without that return, America will be lost. What can we do? What can you do? In the days following 9-11, people flocked to houses of worship, and it looked as if there could have been a spiritual revival, an awakening. But it never came, because there was no repentance. And without repentance, without a turning back, there can be no revival. But I have seen, once in my life, the hand of God change the course of American and world history. And it all began, not in the halls of government, but with the people of God who gathered in a sacred assembly in our nation's capital with the scripture, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. It can happen again. But if we don't respond now, at this most critical moment, we may never have the chance to do so again. Since the time of 9-11, I've been calling for return, for repentance, for revival, not only as individuals, but as a nation, according to 2 Chronicles 7.14. At the same time, a faithful man of God, Kevin Jessup, has for years carried the burden of a sacred assembly for that same purpose of restoration. We are convicted that now is the time. Therefore, this is the announcing of the return, the national and global day of prayer and repentance. It will be a day and more than a day, a time and a season for the movement for prayer, repentance, return, and revival. The central day will be Saturday, September 26th in a sacred assembly according to what is laid forth in Scripture to take place in our nation's capital on the Washington Mall. For those who can't make it or want to do something where you are, then gather together in your states, your cities, in your towns, in your houses of worship, in your homes, or be part of those gatherings already planned. This will take place not only 40 days before the presidential election, but also on the 400th anniversary of the sailing of the Mayflower in the days of America's founding and dedication to God. And surrounding the day of return on September 26th will be 10 days, known from ancient times as the 10 days of repentance, starting with the Feast of Trumpets and ending on the Day of Atonement, to set as a special time to intensify our prayers, our intercessions for repentance and revival. September 18th to September 28th. Believers and leaders who are already part of the return include everybody from Pat Robertson to Dr. James Dobson, from Billy Graham's daughter Anne Graham Lotz to Martin Luther King's niece Alveda King, and many, many more. When does the return begin? Right now. How? With you and me as we commit this time and this year for return, prayer, repentance, and revival. To commit first to our own repentance and to begin actually living in revival. And then to pray for others, the return and revival of our nation and the world. You who are parents, begin by leading your families in revival. Ministers, lead your groups in revival. Pastors, lead your churches into revival. Leaders of ministries, movements, and denominations, lead your people into revival. And spread the word to everybody you can. Let the believers, pastors, and churches in your areas know. Use social media. Use everything you can to spread the word so they can have a part. And if you're watching this and you're not sure you know God, 
or that your life is in his will, then come to him now or come back to him now and then come join in in the return. So I invite you to come to the nation's capital on the Washington Mall, September 26th, 2020. Plan now. You can rent buses, trains, cars, planes, however you can come or gather wherever you are. And if you're watching this from a nation outside of America, you can be part of bringing the return to your nation by doing what I've set forth in this message and going to the return website for more information. I'll be sending out more messages as we go forth. But for now, for more information, to have a greater part to represent the return in your area or to stay up to date, if you're not already on that site, go to the website for The Return, which is easy to remember. It's thereturnwebsite.org. That's thereturnwebsite.org. The Lord is calling. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their sinful ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. The movement and chance we have before us now may never come again. If we don't return now, we may pass the point of no return. So now, in view of the calling and of the moment before us, let us each rise to that call to do what he has called us to do, to believe for great and mighty things we know not of, to return and seek to live in revival and become messengers of revival. It's time to break up our fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord as never before. It's time to return. Let that sink in for a moment. Let me be very, very clear. While I resonate with some of what this speaker has said, I have a great fear that we may in fact be witnessing before our very eyes the beginnings of a false revival that intermingles politics and religion. A false revival that will not lead to true repentance and genuine faith, but rather a movement that moves for the legislation of faith, the legislation of morality, and will usher in the final events of the book of Revelation. This gathering that took place attracted thousands of people. There is no accident, 40 days prior to the election, 400 years after the Mayflower set sail, and a fulfillment of the biblical day of atonement, in its very essence, a mingling of secular political history with biblical framework. And the leaders are not individuals that are unknown in the evangelical movement. Billy Graham's daughter, Pat Robertson, James Dobson, Alvita King, former presidential candidate Michelle Bachman, actor Kevin Sorbo. But more important is as you look at the website and the board of directors, the undercurrent of the leadership and the political 
ties of these leaders cannot be denied. Mike Lindell of MyPillow fame is also an organizer who has plainly stated that Donald Trump was chosen by God. Now let me be very clear in the things that I am stating. I am making no political statements. I am asking us to observe because I am afraid that many of us as Adventists did the same thing that the evangelical world did during these elections. We hitched ourselves to a political candidate rather than attaching ourselves to the Most Holy God. Steve Strang, the founder and publisher of Charisma Magazine, the leading charismatic and Pentecostal media outlet, is an organizer who wrote the book, God and Donald Trump. And the man in the video is a man by the name of Jonathan Kahn. He is the pastor and rabbi of the Jerusalem Center, Beth Israel, in Wayne, New Jersey. His 436,000 followers on YouTube... He is proclaimed by many to be a prophet with messages of the end time. He predicted the outcome of the 2016 election and predicted that Donald Trump would win. He faces a challenge of his prophetic destiny because he also predicted that Donald Trump would win in 2020. In his book, The Paradigm, he compares Donald Trump to the ancient king Jehu leading Israel away from idolatry. He casts Mr. Trump as a heroic figure and he writes these types of things. Trump is offering us a window for revival, a window to return to God. Mr. Khan said what happened in the election was not about Trump, but about something much higher, the purposes of God. And he joins a cast of individuals who even referred to Donald Trump as the modern day Cyrus. In case you are not aware, there was a coin minted that printed one side with the image of Cyrus, the ancient king, and on the other, Donald Trump, the modern former president of the United States. And let me be clear in all of this. I am not making any political assertions. I'm simply pointing out the importance of all of us opening our eyes and seeing what's happening around. And don't miss this. While Pastor Khan and his leadership may have the best of intentions, I believe that that actually will see the fulfillment of the final movements of this earth's history. An effort to do that which is the best for the people. I believe we are seeing before our eyes Right in our own backyard, ladies and gentlemen, the stirrings of a last day coalition of a religio-political power that looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Could it be that in Satan's master deception, he has all of us focused on who we support politically. He has all of us focused on a pandemic. And right behind the shade He has thrown, in a brilliant stroke of polarizing deception, he has, we have missed the most stealthy of His attacks.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we continue to study, guide us. We know without your Spirit, we cannot hear. And so speak to us, Lord, and may your Spirit dwell here with us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open to Revelation, the 13th chapter. We are going to be moving fairly rapidly, and we are going to be covering a number of different things. Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 17. The Bible says the following, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which He was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. Continuing on. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And no one, excuse me, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. This power has long been identified through historicist interpretation as the power of the United States of America. It is a power that was founded with lamb-like principles, principles of religious freedom, principles of a free democratic republic. But it would swing from its lamb-like stature to dragon-tongue speaking very early in its history. You see, very early on, many of the colonies formed religious laws that enforced religious practice. It was only in Rhode Island when it was founded by Roger Williams, who was a staunch advocate of religious freedom, that the separation of church and state truly happened. Now, Revelation 13 points out several key points as to the events that will unfold in this earth's history. Verse 12 says that this power will give the first beast, the papal power, a platform for power. Secondly, it will facilitate a Pentecost-looking revival. And third, it will mingle church and state to the point of legislating religious belief and practice. God has warned against following this power. In God's answer to those deceptive leadings, though, because does this surprise God? Is God caught off guard by the rise of the sea beast and the land beast? He is not caught off guard. What is God's answer to the rise of the sea beast and the land beast? The great cosmic messages, which we refer to as the three angels' messages. He sends forth these messengers, these three cosmic messages. The first one warns people of a pending judgment and the only solution to the coming calamity is belief in the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is belief in the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and heavenly ministry in the sanctuary. The second message is the focal point of what we'll be talking about tonight. What is the second message? And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then later in Revelation chapter 18, you'll remember a fourth angel comes with even greater detail. And after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Babylon. It comes from the Akkadian word, Babel-i-u. It literally means the gate of God. It is also derived from the Hebrew Babel, which means confusion. The ancient city of Babylon was founded, as you'll remember, by whom? It was founded by Nimrod. It was founded by Nimrod as the city of Babel eventually became Babylon. And what was the mindset? What was the DNA of the city? What was the very foundation of that city? Genesis 11.4 tells us, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. You see, they desired to build a tower that would reach the heavens and assure them that they would not be destroyed by another flood. So the very city of Babylon was founded on this fundamental, prison, uh, uh, fundamental principle, rebellion against God. God had made a promise that the earth would not be destroyed by a flood. He assured the world that the rainbow was a reminder of His covenant of salvation. Their efforts to build the tower were implicit distrust at best. Explicit rebellion at worst. And while on the outside looking in, the Tower of Babel made sense. It was a unifying effort for the betterment of the people, you see. For the betterment of the people, for the preservation of humanity. Let us build a tower. It made logical sense. Who could argue with that? There was unity for good. But that unity was founded on a principle of rebellion against God. And if you know history, you'll remember that Babylon then continued in her rebellious ways. It became a part of the kingdom of the Amorites. The Amorites were no friends of the people of God. 
Then the Kassites conquered Babylon and made it the religious political capital of their empire. And that religious political capital would be maintained through several empires. Then came the actual empire of Assyria that conquered the city of Babylon. Later in history, you'll remember, the Assyrian Empire is the empire that conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel. You see, throughout history, Babylon represents a religio-political power that continually attempts to corrupt God's word, God's law, and God's people. The Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar then formed, and as an enemy of God's people, went in 605 B.C., you'll remember, and conquered Jerusalem, besieged it, and took a captive, excuse me, a number of captives back to Babylon. And what did they do to those Hebrew captives, primarily Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? First, they took them from their home. Second, they enrolled them in their schools, attempting to brainwash them. Third, they replaced their food. Fourth, they attempted to indoctrinate them in their false religious practices. And fifth, in an attempt to remove their unique identity as God's chosen people, they made them eunuchs. All with one design. To change them from what they fundamentally were. And in this modern day, now Revelation warns us about a new rise of Babylon. Babylon is symbolic. In the book of Revelation, there are two cities. The city of Jerusalem, the city of Babylon. Jerusalem is home of the saints. Babylon is the mystical, religio-political power that stands in opposition and defiance of God. In early Christian tradition, Babylon was symbolic of Rome. But as the centuries have gone by, political pagan Rome has given way to religio-political papal Rome, supported and backed by the political power of the United States. It is a representation of false religion that mimics the genuine article, but in actuality is everything that is opposed to to God and His will. It is a power that leads out in the last false great revival which leads to confusion. There are several key points that I want us to consider this evening from Revelation 14 and Revelation 18. Number one, Babylon is fallen Literally, in the original Greek, it means that it has faltered, collapsed, or become invalidated. The system of Babylon, the confusion of Babylon, the goals of Babylon are so corrupted that it has collapsed upon itself. Yet too often as God's people, we cower in the corner under fear, believing that Babylon is stronger. The Bible is clear. We are in a war. We are in an army. And we are in God's army. And Ephesians 6 instructs us in the weapons of war and the defense of war. But we cower in the corner often, fearful of standing for God and making advancement on the kingdom of Satan. Number two, her belief system is an intoxicating wine. Many are drinking the wine of Babylon. And friends, we must remember, this representation is to help us understand. 
Wine is an intoxicating drink. And you see the doctrines and false beliefs of Babylon? They sound good on the outside. They they even look good from the outside. And just like real wine, when you drink of them, it gives you a bit of euphoria for a moment or two. Yet they lack a biblical foundation. The euphoric state of the offering of Babylon impairs the frontal lobe, and just as partaking real wine or other alcoholic beverages will do, the impairment of the frontal lobe throws off the decision-making processes of the mind. It throws it into chaos. And it actually makes what's wrong look right. It makes what is sinful look righteous. And unfortunately, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are under the belief that just because we go to church on Sabbath, we have not been deceived. The devil is deceiving us left and right in our lives on a daily basis with Babylonian fury, and many of us are drinking it up like it's going out of style. Babylon's illicit union is fornication. You see, the word used here is to demonstrate what's so intoxicating about her. The union with the state makes it sound even better. However, let us be clear in biblical history, God has never utilized the power of the state to enforce upon Himself, to force Himself upon His people. God offers free will because in order for the love of God to truly be love, it must give us the opportunity to say yes, but also the opportunity to say no. Babylon marries herself to the state to harness the state's power to enforce her broken, confused, and faltering system of belief upon the nations. And the Bible says the nations drink it up. It sounds good. It looks good. It figuratively smells good. But Proverbs 20 and verse 1 warns us. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray is not wise. Proverbs 23 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray is not wise. Isaiah the prophet warned, they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. And just as real alcoholic beverages should not be a part of the Christian's lifestyle practice, the partaking of the wine of Babylon will lead to error. And my dear friends, what we don't take seriously enough is that the error of Babylon will lead to death. 
She is supposed to be married to the bridegroom. But instead, she has married herself to the state. Because the state can legislate enforcement rather than the biblical precedent of humble submission to Christ. I am afraid for us as Adventists because we too are being swallowed up in false doctrines. The rise of anti-Trinitarianism under the guise of the prophetic faith of our fathers is absolute and an abhorrent affront to the nature of God. The Bible instructs us to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the anti-Trinitarian movement reforms that passage to say, baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of a man, and in the name of an indistinct, non-existent force. It's easy to look across the waters, to the boot of Italy, and say, oh, I will not be deceived there. Satan is vastly more crafty than this. We are drinking from the anti-Trinitarian ways that Babylon has planted centuries ago. By the way, anti-Trinitarianism is not just a challenge in the Adventist church. It is sweeping through Protestantism. It originates, my dear friends, in the Counter-Reformation movement. The wine of Babylon. It looks good. It smells good. It was grape juice at one time. And if you've ever had fresh grape juice, it's the best you've ever had. But when that grape juice turns, my wife and I make grape juice it's an interesting thing you crush the grapes and you put them in a barrel and the seeds and the stems all float to the top and at the bottom you're left with the juice and that juice is ready interestingly enough in three days but if you wait a little longer You'll go to take a little sip and there's a little sparkle. It tickles your tongue. But it will kill you. Satan is laying out the deceptions of Babylon. And the fourth principle is God has one solution. And He has one command. Come out of her, my people. It is the only solution. Literally, it means to escape. Come out. The only way to avoid the doom of her false system is to come out. Her false system, which is founded on a false gospel, which is based on an idea that is completely false in its premises against God. What do I mean by that? The Babylonian, the Babylonian premise is that no one can be obedient to God under the guise of His grace. Obedience is impossible. The false doctrine of Babylon says there are only nine commandments. 
By the way, the false doctrine of Babylon is now gone beyond this. Their new doctrine is God understands. Oh, God understands. These aren't ten rules for living. These are ten suggestions that might be appropriate. The foundation of Babylon is based on New Age Greek philosophical teaching on the nature of man and what happens after you die. The doctrines of Babylon are based on a false doctrine on the character of God, portraying Him as a vindictive God who will punish people for eternity. The nature of Babylon is a focus on legislative movement through repentance and heart preparation rather than the preparation for the true and everlasting kingdom that is being set up by God and will be ushered in by the second coming of Jesus Christ. True revival and true repentance, true heart preparation focuses entirely on God's kingdom and not on the acquiring of power on this earth. The only way of escape, the only way to avoid, is to come out. It may look good, it may sound good, it may feel good, it may taste good, but the command of the Most Holy God is to come out. And the book of Revelation tells us that there is a false revival that is coming that will be accompanied by fire coming down from heaven. False revival. It will look like Pentecost. And it may have Pentecost-like results. It may sound like it. It may look like it. But it is false. And what I'm fearful of is that we have fallen asleep and we're slumbering. Because we have this idea, I won't be deceived. But we just go along our merry lives, living however we want. Have you ever had a moment? There are enough of you here that are older, and then there are enough of you here that are younger, that I'm going to have to explain my illustration. How many of you here have ever used a map that is not digitally generated? There are a good portion of you that have not. See, back in the day, they used to print these maps, had all the roads on them. No, I'm being serious. You talk about a phone book today, and people are like, phone book, what's that? And so my wife and I were traveling, and I had looked on the map, and I knew that I was going north. There was no question in my mind. I was going north. But every sign that I passed said that I was going south. But I knew I was going north. But the sign said I was going south. So much did I not believe the road signs that I stopped at a gas station. I did, gentlemen. I actually stopped. <laughs> And I, I said, dear sir, I need to go north. Which way is north? And indeed, I had been going south. If 
Friends, we underestimate. We underestimate the power of deception. Matthew says that the deception will be so powerful that it will deceive, if possible, the very elect. So what can we do? What is the only thing we can do to protect ourselves from this grand deception? True revival and genuine revival in the book of Revelation is absolutely essential to the life of the Christian and the preparation of his or her heart for the kingdom. Revelation chapter 14. It's always interesting in the book of Revelation when a great dissonant moment happens, like Revelation 13, it leaves us wondering, what can I do? And the next scene that God gives us is, even though there's a sea beast and a land beast, there will be the 144,000. Revelation chapter 6 ends and says, who, can, who shall be able to stand? And the next scene is the 144,000. Why? Because the theme of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins and the devil loses. So choose to be on Jesus' side. Choose to be in Jerusalem. Do not choose to be on the outside of the city in spiritual Babylon because her fate is not a good one. So when we talk about the 144,000, we often delve into arguments about its spiritual nature, excuse me, whether it's a literal nature or a figurative nature, and we lose sight of the main point that the author of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, sitting on the island of Patmos, wants us to understand. Because people, when they ask me this question, I don't like to delve into these arguments, they'll say, is it literal or is it figurative? And I'll say, I have a better plan for you. Just make sure you have the characteristics and you're one of them. Revelation 14, verses 4 and 5, outlines those key characteristics of true revival and reformation amongst God's people at the end of time. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were the ones redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. And they are without fault before the throne of God. What does this mean? They were not defiled with women. It is a reference to spiritual purity. They have not yielded to the intoxicating drink of Babylon. They have a complete and utter devotion to God and God alone. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17 says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war. By the way, it's very interesting there. That word went, if you look it up, if you go to a Strong's Concordance and you find that word, and I have some of my homiletic students here, if you go do the things that I talk to you about, the lexicon says that that word translated everywhere else is the word went away. But the translators of the Bible said that doesn't make sense because when you wake, make war, you don't go away. What do you do? You attack. 
But the word has went away. Where did he go away to? Remember, the Bible was not written with chapter and verse division in its origin. And so where did the dragon go away to? What's the very next scene after Revelation 12, 17? Then I, John, stood on the sea, saying a beast rising up out of the sea. Where did the devil go? He went to go get his two friends. The beast from the sea and the beast from the land to form an alliance, the unholy trinity. The dragon, where, what does the dragon want to do? Isaiah chapter 14 says that the dragon wants to ascend a throne above the Almighty because he wants to be the father. The beast that rises from the sea rules for 1260 days, which is three and a half years. How long was the ministry of Jesus, by the way? Three and a half years. You see, the beast that rises from the sea mimics the ministry of Christ. And then the beast that rises from the land mimics the ministry of the Holy Spirit with a Pentecost-like moment. The false trinity that attacks God's people at the end of time. And what is their security? Their security is found in that they keep all ten commandments of God. And they have the testimony of Jesus, which according to Revelation 19.10 is... The spirit of prophecy. Revelation 14, 12, along with that, says, here is the patience of the saints. The word their patience is the same word endurance. Matthew 24, 13, he who endures unto the end shall be saved. The endurance of the saints is what? They keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. You see, they have founded their obedience to God on Jesus Himself. As Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love Me, keep My commandments. If you love Me. Obedience is based on a relationship. Obedience is not based on a checklist. I'm sorry that I need to say this, but many of, our, many of us are far more Catholic than we might admit. I feel like it's okay for me to say this because I grew up in that church. And the catechism that I grew up with said this, the surest and shortest way to heaven is through the Eucharist. What is the Eucharist? The wafer. What is the wafer? The little piece of styrofoam-like bread that is turned into the body of Christ when the priest prays his special prayer over it. It's very simple in the Catholic Church. And by the way, I have dear family members that are still Catholic. I love them because they're faithful people. And they're seeking God. And I believe they will find Him. Let us be careful to address the system in its error and not the people that are in it. But in the Catholic Church, it's a very simple process for salvation. Keep the seven sacraments and you will be saved. But we've formed our own little Adventist catechism too, you know. 
keep the 10. Make sure you read the red books every day, and then you'll be saved. No. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll address this more on Sabbath morning. Ephesians chapter 2 is clear. We are saved by faith alone. But our faithfulness leads us to obedience. And our faithfulness leads us to seek the guidance of God in the prophetic gift. And the Bible says they have the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is summarized as complete and total surrender. You see, sometimes God's plan for our life doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus faced this in the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way. Isaiah 53 says the grief of all of us was placed upon Jesus. Now, I am not a scientist, but I have been told by some that there are estimates that throughout the course of human history, there have been some 20 billion people that have lived on this earth. Now, I want you to consider this. Have any of you been anxious? Have any of you had grief? Have any of you ever been sad? And now what I would like you to take is your sadness. Have you ever had sadness in a moment that you weren't sure you were going to make it through? That you were weeping and weeping and you could not be consoled. And I want you to take that anxious moment. I want you to take that grief moment and multiply it times 20 billion. And that is what was laid on Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is no wonder that the spirit of prophecy says that in the garden, the portals of the tomb began to close for Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he thought he was dying forever, which for an entity that has existed for all time, that is a foreign concept. So now it makes sense when he prayed three different times. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. but not my will. Thy will be done. Dear young people, you're going to face many times in your life where God's will may not make sense to you. Not my will. Thy will be done. Those of us that are not so youthful, we will face crises in our life. Not my will. Thy will be done. Christ's Object Lessons, page 333, says this. 333. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Let that sink in now. What is omnipotence? All-powerful. What does that sentence say? Now, I'm going to ask you a trick question. I always will ask you in advance. Is there anything that God cannot do? Most of us will say, no, God can do everything. And Pastor Carl is probably more theologically correct that there are things that God chooses not to do rather than to say God can't do them. But God chooses not to do one thing, and that is this. He never will force your will. Never. Which means this. The all-powerful character of God 
is held back by one thing. My will. Think about that. And now it makes sense when Ellen White says, not one in 20 of our people are prepared. And then it doesn't get any better because later she says, not one in a hundred is ready. Our churches are weak because we are weak. And I'm sorry I say that in a loving way. Because I struggle with this as well. Jesus paved the way through his example of full surrender. Too often in our lives we say, God, I'll give you everything. Just not that. I like this right here, God. You got to understand right here, I can take care of this. This is nice. It's cozy. It keeps me comfortable. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's your car. Might be your money. Lord, I'll surrender everything but that. And when we say that to God, we hold back His omnipotent will in our life. What are the characteristics of God's people in the end of time? First, they're not defiled by women. This is what we just talked about. Second, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are not deceived by power and intoxicating belief in an earthly political system. It is not Donald Trump or Joe Biden who will save the world. It is not Nancy Pelosi. It is not Mitch McConnell. It is not Chuck Schumer that will save the world. It will not be the next Supreme Court justice who saves the world. The Bible is clear. There is one who will save the world. There is one who has a solution to all of our problems. And that is Jesus Christ the righteous and Him alone. There are individuals right now, there are individuals right now who follow the likes of this man, Pastor Jonathan Kahn, who believe that sometime in August, Donald Trump, will come back to the White House through some political maneuverings. And in that day, some of you have seen this, it's all over YouTube, all over. And people are like, ha ha, people are dumb. People have bought into this. And in August, let us be clear, there are going to be groups of people that are disappointed. If he does not become president, there are going to be people that are disappointed. And if he does become president, there will be people that are disappointed. And people will always say, Pastor, what do you think? That's above my pay grade. I just want to follow Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. Because it doesn't matter. Friends, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Here's the key. Here's the key. Are we hearing the voice of the Lamb? And following wherever he goes. How do we know the voice of the Lamb? We spend time in his word. That's how we know. You see, God's end time people are fully enveloped in listening to his voice. 
The Great Controversy, page 461, says this. Wherever the Word of God has been faithfully preached, results have followed that attest to its divine origin. The Spirit of God accompanied the message of His servants, and the Word was with power. Sinners felt their consciences quickened. The light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world illumined the secret chambers of their souls, and the hidden things of darkness were made manifest. Deep conviction took a hold, excuse me, took hold upon their minds and hearts. They were convinced of sin and of righteousness of Jehovah and felt the terror of appearing in their guilt and uncleanness before the searcher of hearts. In anguish they cried out, Who shall deliver me from the body of his death? As the cross of Calvary, with its infinite sacrifice for the sins of men, was revealed, they saw, that nothing but the merits of Christ could suffice to atone for their transgressions. This alone could reconcile man to God. With faith and humility, they accepted the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Through the blood of Jesus, they had remission of sins that are past. Yet, the way that some of us play politics in the church we demonstrate that our trust is in our own crafty selves rather than in Jesus Christ. God's people at the end of time will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Number three, they are redeemed. They have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 12, 11 makes this simple statement. They overcame Him, speaking of the dragon, by the blood of the Lamb. I'm sorry, they overcame him, speaking of the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Through their yielding their life to him, they have been prepared for heaven. Let me tell you an interesting experience this past week. I'm teaching a master's level class for Southern Adventist University. And we studied in principles and strategies for church growth. As I was preparing for the class, Pastor Armando, I asked myself this question. We always start by saying we have to do evangelism. And in the night hours, I asked myself this question. Why? We always say we have to do evangelism. And then I said, why? Now, I know some of you are saying, that's blasphemous. But you know what? There's a lot of our church members that ask the same question. Why do we have to do evangelism? We really like the family we have here. Why do we have to do? So it challenged me. And so, Pastor Carl, I started asking myself a question. You and I have talked about this. What is the church? The New Testament offers 95 different metaphors for the church. John McVeigh, a former professor in the seminary, categories five. The church is the body. The church, yeah, the church is the body. The church is an army. The church is a family. The church is a farm. And the church, I'm missing one of them now, and this is going to bother me immensely. The church is the body. This is what happens after you've been teaching for five days straight here. The church is the body. The church is, uh, an, oh, the church is the temple. The church is agriculture. The church is martial, or the church is an army, and the church is a family. And when you begin looking into all of these things, by very nature, the body grows. 
by very nature. The church, in its agricultural metaphor, has one goal. How many of you have a garden? Don't worry, I'm not going to call you up and come up here. How many of you have a garden? Yeah, I have some things in my backyard growing. When you plant those things, what's your hope? Do you just want to see the green of your tomato plants? No, what do you want to see? You want to harvest, right? So in my church growth class, to demonstrate the principle that we were going to be teaching, that the church is a body, which means the church is us, composed of many members. I said, this is where we're going to start, gentlemen. No ladies in my class, so just all guys. Don't worry, I'm not trying to be exclusive here, but just all guys. We're each going to get up and share our testimony because they overcome him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And I have to tell you, it was one of the most rewarding experiences for me to hear the testimony of all my students. And it was equally rewarding for all of them to hear each other. Have we yielded our lives in preparation for heaven and truly been redeemed by Jesus? The fourth characteristic is there is no deceit found in them. The foundation of their life is truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes the sinful, erring ways of man into someone whose life is true and faithful. And it is not based on deception, make-believe, deceit, and sin. Many of us live lives that are based on complete farces of reality. We put something on on the outside, but we are vastly different on the inside. And this is not just a people in the pew problem, by the way. This is a problem amongst us as pastors as well. But the Bible says there is no deceit in them, which means there is complete truthfulness as the very essence of their lives. It is a pillar of their character. If we have something we've been hiding, my dear brothers and sisters that are in ministry, our job is to go to God, reveal it to Him, and let Him cleanse us from it. Stop with the facade and come and give it to Him. The Bible says that they are without fault. The fifth characteristic of God's people in the end of time who will avoid the sins and deceptions of Babylon. The Spirit of God is sanctifying His people and it's completing us in Him. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, as we fully yield to him and the power of God is unleashed in our life, the omnipotent, the all-powerful character of God is unleashed in our life. We will be overcomers in him. And it says that we will be blameless and holy and a perfect bride. The transforming power of God in the life of a believer leads to total and complete transformation. The great controversy on page 462 says this, revivals, 
brought deep character, excuse me, deep heart searching and humility. They were characterized by solemn, earnest appeals to the sinner, by yearning compassion for the purchase of the blood of Christ. Men and women prayed and wrestled with God for the salvation of souls. The fruits of such revivals were seen in souls who shrank not at self-denial and sacrifice, but rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer reproach and trial for the sake of Christ. Men beheld a transformation in the lives of those who had professed the name of Jesus, and the community was benefited by their influence. My dear friends, we are living in the end of time. We are seeing, as we saw in this video, the fulfillment of prophecy, the building of coalitions. And I am afraid, I am fearful, because many have gotten caught up in a lot of different things. Seventh-day Adventists questioning whether COVID-19 was one of the seven last plagues. How is that possible? Seventh-day Adventists looking toward Jerusalem in the rebuilding of the temple. How is that possible? Seventh-day Adventists getting caught up in the anti-Trinitarian movement. How is that possible? Seventh-day Adventists getting caught up with the feast-keeping movements. How is that possible? I am concerned that we have become enraptured by earthly political, social, and spiritual agendas, and we have not become enraptured with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am concerned that we have wrapped up our lives in our own agendas, in our own pleasures, in our own wants, in our own desires, and we have lost sight of the desire of nations, Jesus Christ. On page 464 of the Great Controversy, it describes this time where eyes are taken off of Him and we are ripe for deception. Listen to these powerful words. Notwithstanding the widespread declension of faith and piety, there are true followers of Christ in these churches. Before the final visitation of God's judgment upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out on his children at that time. At what time? At that time in the midst of the greatest revival of God's people in the history of the earth, at that time, many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted the love for God and His Word. Many, both of ministers and people, will gladly accept these great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's second coming. The enemy of souls desires to hinder this work. And before the time for such a movement shall come, he will endeavor to prevent it by introducing a counterfeit. And those churches which he can bring under his deceptive power, he will make it appear that God's special blessing is being poured out. There will be manifest what is thought to be great religious interest. Multitudes will exalt that God is working marvelously for them. And when the work is that of another spirit, under a religious guise, Satan will seek to extend his influence over the Christian world. 
So the fundamental question we will end with tonight is this. What will you do? You've come to Heartland for this camp meeting weekend. What will you do? What will you do? Is this just going to be another camp meeting where we can, oh, I saw some friends and it was a great time, which is good. It's good to see friends. But I want to ask you some serious questions. Have you come out of the teachings of Babylon? Maybe you've been straddling the fence for a long time. And maybe tonight God's calling you for a 100% commitment. But I want to get deeper and more personal than that. Because some of us might say, oh, I came out of Babylon a long time ago. I've never been a part of Babylon. <laughs> Pastor, I don't have that problem. But it's a question that all of us must wrestle with. And that is this. While you may have come out of Babylon, or while you may never have been a part of Babylon, here's the question. Has she come out of you? Is our spiritual life one that emulates the truthfulness of God's word or confuses into some fallen spirituality? You see, Babylon looks good on the outside, but in its inner spiritual workings, it is completely bankrupt. Do you put on your game face on a weekly basis, the spruced up Sabbath attire, but on the inside you are completely and totally spiritually destitute? Are you saying one thing and doing something completely opposite? Are you consumed by worldly pleasures at the expense of spiritual transformation? Are you obsessed with getting ahead in life while leaving behind the most important relationship you can have, that relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we preoccupied with materialism? Is our own pleasure the number one priority in we, that we have in, life, in our lives? Are we careless towards spiritual things? Are we nonchalant about the judgment in the second coming? All under the guise of coming to the church, saying the right things, do we look the right way, but are completely empty on the inside? Today, Jesus is calling. Calling for you not only to come out of Babylon, but for her to come completely out of you. That you would leave no space. No space in her to have a home. What will you do? Psalm 51 and verse 10 simply says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Mrs. Mayer is going to come out and play a closing hymn. And Mrs. Mayer, I'm going to ask you to actually do something that we have not practiced, if that's okay. Can we sing the song, Nothing Between? Sure. Okay. I know that this is going to catch our guys in the back a little off guard. But let me tell you why I want to sing Nothing Between. Do all of you know the story of Nothing Between? You know who wrote Nothing Between? Charles Tindley wrote Nothing Between. Born in 1851. Tindley moved to Philadelphia as a young person attended school at night. 
And he said this, I made a rule that every day I would learn at least one new thing, a thing I didn't know the day before. He learned to read and write at his own, on his own at the age of 17. Pastor Carl, he took Greek through the Boston School of Theology. Took Hebrew through a synagogue in Philadelphia. And throughout his young life, he acquired 8,000 books to self-teach him. He completed seminary with the Methodist Church. Tindley supported himself as a janitor of the Calvary Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. And in 1902, Charles Tindley was called to be the pastor of that prestigious church that he had once been the janitor of. The Calvary Methodist Church prospered greatly under his leadership. Eventually, several larger sanctuaries had to be built because people just kept coming. And in 1924, in spite of Tindley's protests, they renamed the church the Tindley Temple Methodist Church. And in 1906, Charles Tindley wrote to him, Nothing Between. It was during a difficult time in his life. It was when the congregation was negotiating to purchase a larger facility, the Westminster Presbyterian Church on Broad Street. And Tindley expressed a concern, and this is his concern, that many of the practices and attitudes of this world must be rejected by Christians if they are to be pleasing to the Lord. And the hymn reminds us that we must watch out for those allurements and temptations because they can easily disrupt our spiritual lives. Delusive dreams, sinful worldly pleasures, habits, pride, self, or friends. The hymn demonstrates as we sing it tonight that a full life in Christ requires sacrifice of worldly pleasure, that we should not be deceived by the delusive dream and we should not let our habits of life, as harmless as they seem, nothing between my soul and the Savior. My prayer for all of us tonight is that we would have nothing between our soul and the Savior. And that the spirit of Babylon would be completely expunged from every last piece of our character. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we have come here. And we know that we are in a war. And that war is about one thing. That war is about our souls. And tonight as we see the continued rising of Babylon and her efforts to separate us from You. Our prayer is simple. May there be nothing between us and You. Tonight in the quietness of this moment, I sense that the Holy Spirit may be convicting someone of those things or things that stand in between our soul and the Savior. Tonight, Lord, I pray as this individual comes under conviction that they would have the power 
that they would have the willingness to surrender. That their will would come into cooperation with Your will. And that Your will would be done in their lives. Father in heaven, help each of us to have the characteristics of the 144,000. May each of us be not defiled with Babylon. May each of us follow the Lamb wherever He goes. May each of us be redeemed. May each of us have no deceit. And may each of us be found without fault before You. Oh, Heavenly Father, may we take this moment seriously. And may there be nothing between. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.